0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined again by renowned critic and playwright Terry Teachout for our 8th conversation on noir and noir-adjacent films. Our movie for today is Pitfall from 1948, directed by André de Toth. And starring Dick Powell, Elizabeth Scott, Jane Wyatt, and Raymond Burr in one of his most terrifying roles, one of his <laughs> Perry Mason is a bad guy. He did it a couple of times, memorable roles, and we'll get a chance to talk about that. First of all, sir, thank you for joining me. I think our audience will be thrilled to discover this. It doesn't have quite the cachet or the star power that other noir movies have, and it doesn't lean so much into beautiful tragedy. But on the other hand, it's way more modern in its reliance on our everyday lives, on middle-class America, on the good things and the temptations that come with this way of life.
1: It really does have a fresh feel to it. In the quintessential film noir, uh, the one that takes place out on the dark streets of Los Angeles, we may or may not have a personal connection with that. We're more likely to see it as a kind of romanticization of life. But the most striking thing about Pitfall is that it is a film about a perfectly everyday life, one into which the bomb falls without warning. The film dates from 1948. uh, Immediately after the war, everybody's back, everybody's settled down. Everybody ought to be appreciating the revival of normality. Everybody comes back from the war, as Dick Powell's character has. And yet, a lot of people came back to their settled suburban family lives and felt that something wasn't quite right. Something wasn't quite adequate, perhaps because they had been exposed to a different world the world of Europe or the Pacific, the world of violence and conflict, and they couldn't adjust. And that is really the starting point for this very striking film.
0: Yes, indeed. And maybe we should start talking a bit about Dick Powell, who is near his best adult form here. He's rare for a leading man to turn from sunny-side-up sort of storytelling, and every man with a bit of charm, a bit homespun, very attractive in his way to then this sort of dour, tough man who might kill somebody, protagonist in dark stories. The first I saw was, of course, the Chandler adaptation he so unusually starred in. Chandler was, for whatever reason, not adapted quite as much as one might have thought he would be given his talent, but Murder, My Sweet, which came out in 1944, allowed for this sort of romantic, tough, dark drama to give a whole new career to
1: Dick Powell. Yes, if Powell had died in the war, we would remember him now as the charming male ingenue who was the tenor... Well, not the stupid tenor, but the romantic lead tenor in Busby Berkeley musicals, an absolutely preposterous thought, which means that we wouldn't remember him at all. But he was not just a pretty face. He was an extremely intelligent man who understood that he needed to do something with his career and had the extraordinary idea of, as we now say, retrofitting himself as a tough guy hero. And although the term had not yet been coined as a film noir hero. He did it in Murder, My Sweet, it was an immediate hit, he kept on going back to it and he continued doing it until a little later on in the 50s he actually lost interest in acting itself and became distinguished as a producer and director and moved into television and did very important work there as well. But for a short period between the end of the war and uh, the beginning of the 50s, Dick Powell was one of the most interesting actors in film noir. And he's
0: unusually fit for this sort of role. The returning veteran, the man who has to decide for himself what the fighting was all for? Of course, it was the right thing to do. We're glad we won. What are we going to do now? And we start with him in a very bad mood. He's deeply dissatisfied with what should be every man's dream. Well, what do you dream of when you go off fighting? Why did so many men marry on their way to the war? You dream of a home, of a wife, of kids, of domesticity, of a stable life, of some assurance of the good things in life. But when once you get all this, it does not satisfy. The man has all sorts of other thoughts on his mind. He doesn't want to be all this stable. He doesn't want life to be that reliable. At some level, he believes that manliness requires a bit of danger. It requires some risk-taking.
1: And yet he doesn't know the specific thing that he wants. Which, in the world of film noir, is a very good opportunity for something really bad to happen to you.
0: Yeah, you have no idea what you're opening the door to. But, but no. if the urge comes over, the compulsion comes to you, and you want to open that door, then you do enter in this world of harsh shadows, of black and white that's mostly black. In his case, he's, he's connected to this dark world also professionally. It's not just that his personal life reflects the new America that would be the peaceful 50s, but his job, he's in insurance, he's in the whole world of making sure commercial transactions turn out more or less as they're supposed to, that life becomes predictable, that people in the pursuit of property are going to get more or less what they think they're bargaining for. This is also very close to the role he really lobbied for but didn't get, the lead in double indemnity which is all about insurance investigations and this future in america the future has got to be insurance because people want to hedge against danger not to embrace danger but
1: they want to be serious
0: exactly like right. we gotta have they safety. want to
1: be safe they're willing to pay money for it and they're willing to pay enough money so that dick powell can have a nice desk job which is basically what he has yep. at the olympic mutual insurance company And then one fine day, there comes into his office a man who oozes threat and violence, Raymond Burr, about which there is much to be said. For my generation, I'm 63, we grew up seeing Raymond Burr as the good guy. In Perry Mason, where he was the infallible attorney, in Ironside, where he was the police investigator confined to a wheelchair. But prior to that time, Raymond Burr was known as the greatest of all film noir heavies quite literally he was a big (laughs) stocky man with a very striking voice and time and again he played men of barely controlled violence most strikingly in raw deal an anthony man phil noir in which he throws a a flaming container of sterno into the face of of a woman whom he's sleeping with he just makes you jump with fright and most famously i suppose in uh, alfred hitchcock's rear window where he plays Lars Thornwald, who uh, murders his wife, dismembers her, and buries her in the garden piece by piece and makes the mistake of being seen by Jimmy Stewart. So it was quite a switch for Burr to become the good guy. It made him a rich man, and it wrecked his artistic career because he never did anything of any quality after he uh, moved to television and became Perry Mason. This film was almost completely forgotten. It was an independent production. It really slipped through the cracks. If I remember correctly, it actually had to be restored by UCLA for the present print that we now see. Yes. People just didn't. It's, this is not one of the famous film wars. But it happens to enshrine, among many other things, what I think might be Raymond Burr's best performance on screen as an extraordinarily bad guy. He's a private investigator who sometimes works on cases with Dick Powell. And uh, he's looking after an embezzler who's in jail and whose uh, girlfriend has got some presents that the embezzler gave her with stolen money. And, of course, Dick Powell has to deal with that. And that's where he starts down the road that has no turning back.
0: Yes, exactly. For all the safety of our world, if you want to fight (laughs) off crime... If you want to fight a fraud, you're going to have to deal with some people who are closer to that world than respectable people themselves are. Of course, we all want to hedge against risks, against dangers, against bad things. But that also means that we need at some level, however institutionalized, these other guys. Who's going to find out who's been embezzling what? Like it or not, you cannot banish evil from human life, not even in the paradise that was uh, post-war America. Nor can
1: you banish sex, and that is where the lady in question makes her appearance. It is Elizabeth Scott, who had just emerged from the world of the starlet in the making to become a young actor who really was starting to attract attention on film. She wasn't a great actor, but she was a very striking screen presence. She had a low, throaty voice. She was a bit like Lauren Bacall. Yeah. But she seemed, oddly enough, at one and the same time, more innocent and more knowing. And those qualities are exactly what this role calls for. The role of Mona Stevens, who is a model, whose boyfriend is the embezzler, who has accepted gifts, including a speedboat, and who is, whether she knows it or not, living on the margins of life, which is Raymond Burr catches wind of her, is very attracted to her, tells Dick Powell about her. And Dick Powell comes out to reclaim the speedboat. And that's where trouble starts, because she is an irresistible woman. And he is a bored man.
0: Yeah, I think you get it exactly right, that she has this combination of innocence and knowingness. Innocence attracts men, and the knowingness in certain ways challenges them. And the whole story actually revolves around her, which is an unusually subtle part of the story, because it should be all about Dick Powell. But it's in fact about this woman and the three men in her life. The embezzler boyfriend who's now in jail and who's going mad. The insurance detective Raymond Burr who's falling in love with her and wants to take her into possession quite literally and control her Mm. life because he's aware that he's a scumbag. He's not trying to be nice or winning because he knows where in life he is and he's actually very much okay with it. Part of what makes him terrible is his assuredness that tyrannizing, at least in some small part of America, is his due. He's got a little tyranny of his own creation and it will work because he's strong enough and shameless enough to do it and nobody's going to stop him.
1: He really seems like a demonic figure, doesn't he? And then we have Dick Powell, who is playing a very nice guy. Whose only problem is that he is vulnerable because he is tired in an unspecified and not quite, he can't quite understand why. But there's a lingering dissatisfaction in his life. And he shows up at Mona's apartment, tells her what's going on. They go get a look at the boat, which is going to have to be repossessed. And she takes him quite literally for a ride on this (laughs) boat. And all of a sudden he is swept on the water away from his boring life in the company of a very beautiful woman who is by definition available since she's been having an affair with the fellow who's in prison, but who is not hard, who is not tawdry, who is vulnerable and he can't resist her. This being 1948, none of this is made explicit, but it is quite obvious that Dick Powell enters into a sexual affair with her. And this enrages Raymond Burr, which is what pulls the pin on the grenade. Yeah. One is
0: reminded of the saying that it's enough for one crooked moment to destroy an honest man, or for one moment of honesty to destroy a crooked man. We see these two guys, Raymond Burr and Dick Powell, whose only connection at first seems to be business. Dick Powell has to deal for respectable American enterprise with these kinds of scumbags who are nevertheless effective. They can find things out. They pry into people's lives, then they pry people's lives apart with no problem. Then this connection turns out to be private as well, not just professional, because at some level they're fighting over this woman. Dick Powell thinks that you can be an innocent adulterer, because she's kind of innocent and he's kind of innocent, and let's be honest, it's a modern world, and we're all merely human and all that stuff that everyone has heard a thousand times before.
1: And yet, by this point in the film, we have seen his marriage... He is married to, of all people, Jane Wyatt, who later on will become very famous as the wife and father knows best, and who is one of those quintessential nice girl next door types. And he has a child, a perfectly adorable child. He has this ideal suburban life that has been portrayed clearly enough that we know very well what he is putting at risk by dallying with Elizabeth Scott.
0: Yes, exactly. And in as much as both of them have to have a certain romantic innocence about them, Dick Powell and Lisbeth Scott, you also see how reckless that actually is. This is not rare in an American drama that a man needs to have a daughter to accept his mortality. There, a beautiful young creature will love him unconditionally and he will protect her and he will not be tempted to run away from respectability and to try to fight off his inevitable aging, his loss of his powers.
1: Powell is right on the fulcrum moment. This is what I think a little later on in American culture we would know to call a midlife crisis. He's a person who is dissatisfied he knows why, but he doesn't know what to do about it, and he finds himself presented with a chance to do something about it to prove his continued potency by involving himself with an attractive woman, attractive in every sense of the word. He does so. I think I think there is a sense in which he envies Raymond Burr's involvement in the dark life. That's not portrayed explicitly, but he couldn't feel any other way. I mean, Burr is an unattached man who lives his own life, does whatever he wants, whenever he wants to. He's not paying the mortgage. He's not coming home to the wife. He's not playing bridge every Saturday night. He is free. And Powell is asking himself, is there a way that I can have it both ways, that I can have some of this and then come back home to some of that? And unfortunately, the catch is, I suspect that Raymond Burr envies Dick Powell reciprocally. He is fully aware of what he is, which is a big, unattractive, nasty man whose only way to have a woman is through cash and carry. And when he realizes that Dick Powell is trying to make time with the woman whom he imagines to be his girl, he beats him up and tells him to leave her alone, which is perfectly typical of the way he operates. One of the most striking things about this film, one of the most modern aspects of it, is the portrayal of the way that Raymond Burr goes after Elizabeth Scott, because he is portrayed as a man who will not take no for an answer. It's almost like a chapter out of a Me Too story, the sort of thing that we could easily be seeing in the news, that he moves on her, uh, he will not accept that she is not interested in him, he will do anything to put her in his pocket, and his physical strength, the fact that she's in an equivocal position, that she's accepted stolen goods, makes her very vulnerable to him, and I think you used the word self-assured earlier, and that is the most striking thing about the characterization. Raymond Burr is never in doubt for a moment until everything goes sour for him, that he is going to be able to get what he wants and that above all, he can roll right over Dick Powell. doesn't occur to him for a moment that Dick Powell might actually be able to stop him.
0: Yeah, we all of us believe that violence is never the solution or bromides like that, that of course encourages violent people to think they'll get away with it. Who is going to stand up for a vulnerable woman like this? It is a strange bit of storytelling to ask a compromised man, a man who makes himself an adulterer and endangers his all-American middle-class life, to be the knight in shining armor. And it turns out that if you want to be a knight in shining armor, you had better be prepared to fully face the dark side of life. It's not just a role you play, but it also shows that actually it is possible. That's what makes the movie so strange. It does find some virtue in the fact that this man corrupts himself and endangers his life. There is a certain nobility in what he's looking for. And he really does get to play the noble hero. And this points to something in American society. The reason our villain is so assured is that he knows for damn sure that nobody in America is going to do anything about this. That a vulnerable woman can be tormented and tyrannized. He doesn't is expect competition and in a sense he expects that he has a right to this the only moment when he loses his school is when he beats up dick powell and he starts all the drama otherwise he's a conniver he puts guns in other people's hands but for once he loses his school and beats him up because somebody's coming on his turf aren't respectable men satisfied to have all of respectable america must they also try to take over the rest
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. How how dare he do that? And of course, let's not forget that we get true evidence that Elizabeth Scott's character is a decent person because she breaks off the affair with Dick Powell. This is after Raymond Burr beats her up. She understands that she has put his family and his life at risk and she's not willing to take that responsibility. She knows that that's the wrong thing to do, but unfortunately, irresistible forces have been unleashed, and in an extremely complicated, but also extremely well-told sequence of events. This is one of those film noirs where the plot gets quite knotty in the central section. The characters move in on Dick Powell's home, both Raymond Burr and the young man who is the embezzler, and everything gets out of hand very fast ultimately leading to Dick Powell's having pulled out his, I think, his service revolver. Yes. And shooting dead Lisbeth Scott's jealous uh, lover. The yeah. next step after that is that Raymond Burr, assuming that he's got everybody in the clear now, decides to move in on Lisbeth Scott and take her away, and she kills him. And you now have ended up with two corpses and two murderers, and a responsibility which ultimately lies in the hands of Dick Powell, who is the guy who started all of this.
0: The moral seriousness of the third act is, even if the performances had not been as good, even if the cinematography weren't persuasive, you could take many other virtues from the movies, but still, having that there would tell you that this is a movie made by adults for adults. People have to face what things really are like there is no appeal to bromides or cliches, and instead you're asked to face the dark consequences of deeds that aren't themselves all that damning. And, uh,
1: you know, this is not a slick movie. André de Toth is a journeyman director, one who has worked in many genres and made many very good B-level films. This is not a film with unforgettable cinematography. It's not a film with a noteworthy score. Its virtues lie in its script and the really superior acting of the leads. And that script forces you to recognize that terrible things can happen to nice people. Because the way this ultimately plays out is that Dick Powell confesses to the police his complete role in what has happened. And he doesn't try to hide anything. He doesn't try to make himself look any better than he is. He's admitted everything to his wife, who really believes quite reasonably that he should shut up and say nothing about it because he's got a wife, he's got a kid. uh, How dare he put them at risk to behave in his idea of what is honorable? And yet he can't help that. He's got to purge himself first by confessing to her and then by confessing to the police. And... Here comes the denouement, which is really actually shocking. He hasn't done anything he can be jailed for. He killed the boyfriend out of self defense. It's clear that he is ultimately responsible for Elizabeth Scott's shooting Raymond Burr, but he didn't do it. She did. He can't be charged for having incited her to murder, he can't be charged for inciting her to anything. And as the police inspector says to him in the next to last scene in the film, you know, you don't have any right to be walking away from this. And you're going to remember it for the rest of your life. And as he leaves the police station, we see in the background, one of my favorite touches of the film, Elizabeth Scott coming out of an elevator, not seeing him on the way to her own fate, which is presumably the gas chamber she is the one who is going to take the fall for his sin which would really be just too outrageous except for the last scene in the film in which his wife his loving wife like he's a commuter picks him up at the police station and she says yes she's going to try to stay with him she's going to try to make the marriage work but she just doesn't know whether it's really possible That's the fade out and that is in some ways I think the toughest part of the film because even though he doesn't go to jail even though he doesn't go to the chair he doesn't pay the conventional prices for his transgression he's paying a very different kind of price which is going to be the price of uncertainty at the fade out he does not know whether he's going to be able to get his life back and even if he does for the rest of that life he is going to remember what he has done and why it happened. That is a very, very tough way to end a film, especially a film made in 1948.
0: Yeah, you get what it means to have blood on your hands and why it is that in our sometimes silly ways we try to banish certain dangers from comfortable, peaceful, middle-class lives. It is not easy to live with how tragic life can really get and it is better for people to live decent lives. But sometimes, of course, people have it too good for their own sake, so to speak. There are these other darker passions in the heart, and they will not always be quiet. In good times, people mostly have it good, but some of them get restless. And restlessness, of course, is all American. You have only one life to live. What are you going to do? Is this it? Success can be damning, corrupting in this way, because it makes you ask yourself, is this what I was always working up to? And is this it?
1: I love your using that phrase, because it happens right now. I've been going back to the novels of one of my favorite American writers of this period, John P. Marquand, whose great subject, dramatized most famously in his most successful, important novel, Point of No Return, is about what happens to successful middle-class people who come to feel that their lives are empty and that their values are false but who are completely committed by the existence of marriages, families, jobs, to remaining on the course that life has set for them. Marquand doesn't dabble in noir at all. His novels are, in a sense, domestic tragedies that look back into the histories of the characters to see how they ended up at these points. But the principal character, Charles Gray, the bank executive, uh, the vice president, who is the central character of Point of No Return, could just as easily have been Dick Powell's character in Pitfall. Quite clearly, these themes were really in the air in the late 40s and early 50s in America, because if they weren't, we wouldn't have all of these works of popular art about them, and those works of popular art would not have been so successful. I mean, we forget that people made a lot of film noir because people liked to see film noir. John Marquand was one of the best-selling novelists in America throughout the 40s and 50s. He was telling people something that maybe they didn't want to hear, but that they needed to hear. He was trying to show them what their lives were like in in its more melodramatic way. Noir tries to do the same thing. And this really is a film noir, although it doesn't particularly look like one. It's set in the comfortable world, the daylight world of offices, of uh, suburban homes. Uh, We have a couple of scenes in a jail, but that's basically not where this movie is happening. It is a daylight film noir, but it is one that fulfills all of the well-known requirements for the genre. It is a story of moral choice, of making the wrong choice, and of facing the consequences that arise from making that choice. And I have no idea why this film dropped through the cracks. It's not, as we said, as polished as Double Indemnity or Out of the Past, but it's on its level an absolutely first-rate piece of work, a kind of B-movie, but one that ennobles the genre by the real moral seriousness with which the tale is told. It shows us some damned good acting. Dick Powell, I mean, how on earth did a Busby Berkeley tenor turn into this kind of actor? Part of it was he had a beautifully appropriate speaking voice, a low baritone with just a touch of gravel in it. Obviously, old age, and I suspect smoking, it from where its natural tessitura was in the 30s. So that when he started playing roles in, in movies like Murder, My Sweet and this one, he sounds right. He sounds not like a, a silly tough guy, not like a caricature tough guy. But like a real tough guy, someone who is absolutely prepared to do whatever he has to do in order to prevail, he's right on the nose. Uh, Raymond Burr comes within inches of stealing this film. If it wasn't for the fact that he's playing opposite uh, Powell and, and Elizabeth Scott, he'd walk away from it because he's such a tremendous presence in this. Elizabeth Scott never gave a better performance, I don't think, and she gave some awfully good ones in The Strange Loves of Martha Ayers and other films of that period. But this is the best movie, and so it elicits the best performance from her. There's nothing silly in it. As sometimes the film that she did with Bogart, the name Dead is, is yeah. yeah, Dead Reckoning, has elements of something approaching self-parody. There is no self-parody in this movie. This movie is, given its premise, completely plausible. And that's part of what makes you jump out of your seat at the end. Because you buy it.
0: I think it bears stressing how the story allows for these performances and they strengthen the story and they strengthen each other and end up being far more persuasive than anything would have a right to be if it's not just star-studded, full of talent all the way, a film for the ages. Most films are not films for the ages, but that's not their failure. Their failure is that they do not have this combination of art and moral seriousness that allows for a fully persuasive form of storytelling. And it is well done after you see the second time, after you start thinking about it again. When you talk about it to people, you realize the characterization, how coherent, how clear it is. It makes perfect sense that Dick Powell would end up having to fight the other two men because they're on the other side of the respectability line in America. One of them was not satisfied to have a middle class life. He wanted luxury, so he turned in bezler. He thought that you could get property by theft. And he ended up in jail after a while of success and a kind of playboy luxury lifestyle. And he's so angry that that didn't work out for him. That the fantasy of celebrity stardom, you know, get yourself a model girlfriend, make her a lot of nice gifts, go off on the speedboat, be Cary Grant, it didn't work out for him. And he's going to take it out on somebody else. On whom? On the guy who lived the middle class life on the guy who served his country and is working a nine-to-five and is doing the respectable thing. There is a lot of mutual aggression, and some of it has to do with social class, some of it has to do with moral commitments. What is it that you really believe in, and will you defend it? And so also with Raymond Burr, who's a corrupt cop who left the force because there's even more success he could have with his kind of corruption outside of the rather corrupt police force of the time and place in this sort of private investigator world where he gets to squeeze people who are already vulnerable. Police work taught him one thing, not that he should be protecting the innocent, but that the vulnerable are easily tyrannized. That is a horrifying thing to learn, but it happens to be true and it's important for people to realize that. Of course, these two have a natural alliance, because unlike the middle class respectability, which can look banal, they really do believe in tyrannizing at the level at which they can do it. They really do believe in stealing and in having their way. And if that involves violence, that will turn out to be fine as well.
1: We're seeing the two sides of the same coin here. Let's say a bit more about Jane Wyatt, because she's really good in this movie. And it's because she's got a really good role to play. Usually... When you have a film noir or noir adjacent movie in which there is a hero who has a normal happy marriage, it's sappy. I'm thinking particularly yes, of a movie that I otherwise like very much, The Big Heat, Fritz Long's film, in mm-hmm. which Jocelyn Brando plays Glenn Ford's wife. And that marriage is too good to be true. It's not that she could have played it any differently. That was the way the role was written. But Jocelyn Brando's performance in that film is saccharine. She is the perfect stay-at-home wife and mother. She's just adorable. It's almost a pleasure to see her get blown up in the middle of the film. Uh, well, you know, Jane That's Jane Wyatt in this film isn't that way. Yes, of course she was that way in Father Knows Best, but we're not talking about Father Knows Best. Here, she and Dick Powell are playing two convincing married people, people who scrape up against each other. She is creating the best possible suburban life for him, but she is also quite aware that there's underlying dissatisfaction. And uh, this is a moment that I find enormously convincing. She makes quite clear to him she doesn't want to know if he's doing something bad. She feels that that's an act of weakness for him to put it on her. And her performance, far from being insipid, is both believable and, in the end of the film, quite singularly tough. Part of what makes this film so interesting is that she's tougher than you expect. And conversely, Elizabeth Scott is sweeter than you expect. The Elizabeth Scott role would normally have been played in a sort of a classic film war by somebody like Gloria Graham, who oozes poison and corruption as soon as she opens her mouth. That's not true here. This is a girl who's gotten in over her head. Maybe she's no better than she has to be, but I think she'd like to be better than that. So the two central female roles of the film exchange traits in a way. And that's another part of what makes the script so excellent, so fine.
0: They're both adults. Jane Wyatt plays a woman who wants suburban happiness and she doesn't think virtue will make you soft. It makes her a bit tough. As you put it, she sets very firm limits on what can enter suburban life. She's aware that her husband is a man, and he has other needs, as it were. That there are passions in his soul that should play out at some level, but there's no room for them in this arrangement. And she doesn't even want to deal with that. She's not trying to make the best compromise or what have you. She knows that, in fact, suburbia means that women will be in charge, and she thinks that that's just how things should be. And the man has to, at some level, reconcile himself to being kissed on the forehead now and then. Most marriages include kissing on the forehead. If you're not married yet, people, trust me, it's going to happen. And that's a very strange experience to go through if you're a man.
1: Well, speaking of spouses, The Celebrated Mrs. T, we watch a lot of film noir together. We both love the genre, but she hastens to point out that in most of these films, the women are presented in some way or another as stereotypical characters. One of the things that struck her most forcibly about Pitfall the first time she saw it was that it doesn't do that that both of these characters are quite believable, quite realistic. They don't play into the usual stereotypes. And uh, she was impressed by that. I mean, she really felt, as I do, that this is part of what makes the film so watchable today, what gives it a feel that we perceive as being more modern. And I think it's because of this mixture of traits that the two principal women characters have. You wonder how a film like this happened. It's an independent production for one of those little bitty companies, Regal Films, distributed by United. The Toth is not in any way a first string director. Nobody involved with the film other than the cast is of the first string. And as we said, the film itself is not slick. It doesn't have, Double Indemnity is not slick, but it has the self-assurance of an absolutely first class artistic team led by Billy Wilder. You do not find this in this film. It is a perfectly straightforward piece of storytelling. And yet, it is as involving as any film noir that was ever made during the great period of the genre. And I do often think, when I see a film like this, how did it happen? How did a film like this come to pass? What is the starting point? Who is the auteur? We really can't know that because there's no primary source research on a movie like this, a movie that nearly got got lost. All we have is the product itself, and it's extraordinarily convincing qualities. It doesn't put a foot wrong. It doesn't put a single foot wrong anywhere in the film.
0: Yeah, it's a product of a Hollywood age where all sorts of crafts and disciplines had already been learned so that work could be done well, that organization coordination, this could be done well. But when also the studio system was dying... And that opened up the world that we now fully live in, a world where most movies, even very big movies, are not produced by studios. Studios are actually just distributors, and they work as banks. They'll pay out the budget for a certain movie under certain contractual requirements. But it'll be production houses that actually deal with it, many and varied as they are. The movies feel much smaller now. Even comparing Pitfall with something like Double Indemnity, which is exactly what the movies originally thought of themselves as being grand, elegant, extraordinary. This is not that. It's a smaller movie, it's more intimate. It makes America feel much more plausible, lived in, recognizable, not idealized, not heightened to an unreal pitch. But it also shows the virtues that come with this sort of smaller filmmaking. Production houses, if people want to take the chance on something, they could do it their own way. It's not going to be the greatest movie ever, but it could be something that works without a hitch. That, as you put it, doesn't put a foot wrong because the studio isn't going to get in the way. And all of the things that would get in the way in a studio system are not going to hamper you. Now, of course, that means that you have to not put a foot wrong in a way because you're walking a tightrope now. You can't fall back on other authorities or somebody else's responsibility. But if you have enough talent, craft, and organization, here's what you could come up with. This is the sort of thing that should be studied by people because at some level, this is how you would make movies today. You'd have to find the actors, the script, and the crafts needed to put together a real piece of storytelling that has something at its core. And you'd have to take the chance on saying, actually, I could bring this out.
1: You know, it never occurred to me until just this moment. But what pitfall reminds me of, and the process that you have just described, is the westerns that Randolph Scott and Bud Bedecker started making together right around the same time. They were independently produced. Scott is the main producer. He brings Bedecker in to direct them. They're mostly written by Burt Kennedy. They are done on the cheap. So cheap that at least one of them ride lonesome has no interior scenes at all. Every scene in the film takes place outside. And yet, they are films with perfect little ensemble casts in which every actor is ideally chosen. They are films that are, like film noir, about extremely serious moral choices. In each of these films, the villain makes the decision to go down the wrong path, and we see him make it, and he suffers the consequences one way or another. Films in which Randolph Scott is portrayed not as the cliché good guy, but as an aging, weather-whacked man, himself in the grip of obsession, who does good because he doesn't know any other way to live his life. These are not, by the standards of Hollywood in the 30s and in the first half of the 40s, important films. And yet, they're little masterpieces, just like the best film noir is. Because the genre's rules are so clearly defined, and the production setup allows the people making the film to do what they want as long as they hit the bottom line, that there's room for art, quite a bit of art, something very close to high art. To me, the Bedeker-Scott films rank right up there with the best work that John Ford was doing during the same period. You know, I, everybody recognizes that now they become extremely well known and deservedly so. But as we've been talking about this, I'm thinking a movie like Pitfall is the same kind of film produced independently, done without a great deal of expense. Its virtues in here almost entirely in the casting in the script, but it's serious in every way. It's an adult film in the best sense of the word, not the sense that became prevalent when you and I were younger. (laughs) Uh, And uh, it's a film that more than a half century after it, it, it was made can still completely engage us as a moral tale, as a story of what life is like for the middle class and what can happen to people who step off the road of righteousness. It's funny, I have often thought that the best, in some ways, pound for pound, the best films that were made in the later years of the studio system were westerns and film noir, precisely because they are rule-bound genres, precisely because everybody figured they knew how to make them, and that they would be left alone. The best animated cartoons were the same way, too. As long as you produced however many cartoons you produced a year, and they got to the theater on time, nobody cared what you did. As a result, you got masterpieces like Duck Amok, little masterpieces. <laughs> I mean, we're not talking Tolstoy here, but we are talking artistically valid, persuasive works of popular art that retains its value decades after the fact. And Pitfall surely is as good a film in that sense as Seven Men From Now or *Ride Lonesome, as well as being a film as good as the big budget noir that preceded it. I won't say it's quite as good as Double Indemnity. What movie is we're talking about one of the half dozen best movies of the studio system? But on its level, I don't really see other than having gotten a better composer. When I rescreened it to do this podcast, I thought to myself, "Oh Lord, I wish this film had had a better score." It's completely undistinguished, uh, except for that. I don't see how you can improve it.
0: That is a failure. It doesn't tarnish the film much, but you can tell immediately there was nobody there working hard and figuring how to add music as characterization. Yeah. Compared to the work that the actors do and the screen and the direction do, this is just slipping on the job. But the rest of it is done indeed so very well that you can see these are the advantages of genre. If you have something serious to say, it will help you. Just like even the limits. You're not working with the biggest stars or a big budget, these will help you if you're serious about the stuff that you have to say. And that at the core is this, you know, why is American life so middle class? Aren't there alternatives? Yes, there are alternatives. Let's explore them. <laughs> it doesn't work out well, but it is a necessary part of America as much now as then. It is still a middle class country. We still have middle class aspirations, but we still face certain temptations and difficulties. The movie has quite a, a lot of moral subtlety as you put it, it's utterly unsentimental about the middle-class suburban wife. She's a woman with her head on her shoulders. She's not innocent or ignorant. She has made her decisions and did so knowingly. But so also, we have a femme fatale who is fatal by accident. She didn't mean to. She's not vicious. She has slipped into vice by weakness and bad luck, to be honest. This movie is remarkably willing, as noir often is, to say that not all good people are good simply out of great virtue. It's often a lot of good luck and, of course, good circumstances. And not all bad people end up in vice because they're so vicious. Some of them really are. Some of them are halfway there. And some of them, like this woman, are more weak than anything else. She's just another girl who saw the promises of American life, and she wanted some of that for herself. There was somebody willing to do it for her, So she went out with this boyfriend. How was she supposed to know what was going to come? You have to accept, therefore, there's going to be quite a lot of confusion in a free country. She's a young woman. She wouldn't have had the chance to learn much about life. And the people who aren't protected or don't get lucky, they might fall through the cracks. And this, too, is still a permanent issue. We have freedom, so there's going to be confusion. There's going to be temptation. And some people, by their weakness rather than vice, are going to be led to very bad situations.
1: How very different from the cartoonish superhero movies and space movies that dominate film today. Uh, I think back, I, I mean, I can't bear them. The only one that I've seen in the last, I don't know, 20 years that I think has the moral pith and intelligence of the films we've been talking about is The Dark Knight. Yes. That's a, It seems a fluke. That, among all of this other commercial trash... uh,
0: Yeah, it was also made by a guy who had a kind of neo-noir as his first film, Memento, and then you know another detective sort of noir insomnia, precisely because it's about serious people. It's a movie made by adults for adults. Of course, the young are invited to enjoy all the fantasy of it, but they're not going to be reassured that you get infinite power with your moral self-righteousness and you win every fight. You're going to be told that moral purity and power don't go together in this world. There's always going to be danger and corruption.
1: I haven't looked up the reviews of Pitfall, and to truth to tell, I doubt if there were very many of them. But I have little doubt of what they would have said. They would have presented it as just another thriller of 1948. They might have even dismissed it as commercial trash. Back then, the critics were attracted to uh, big-budget, serious movies, and I have scare quotes around the word serious. They didn't understand just how serious a little movie like this could be. And I'm sure that Dick Powell and Elizabeth Scott and Audrey de Toth himself had no idea that decades and decades later, we would still be watching this movie and talking about it and discussing it, analyzing it, as though it had, as it does have, something serious to say about American life. That's Pitfall in a nutshell.
0: Yes, and I am grateful for this. These people were not giving great speeches to the cast about what a great thing this is going to be and all the fame they're going to be (laughs) be reaped. They could have been perfectly excused to do forgettable work since they were going to be forgotten anyway. But they didn't. They did their work as best they could and it turned out to be more than good enough.
1: Yes, sure enough.
0: So, We have had every time occasion to recommend movies, but all the ones we've talked about before are already famous. We have insights to share, but we cannot create their fame. This movie deserves to be more famous than it is, and I hope our audience will search it out and watch it. It's a very enjoyable movie that also feels all-American.
1: Yes, it gets shown on TCM. It's there for you. Trust us on this.
0: Thank God also for TCM. (laughs) They're doing very good work. Good stuff. It's important to know that we have a tradition of this. These movies take their dignity from being all-American, from saying something worthwhile about the world we actually live in, and that we shouldn't be neglectful of, much less contemptuous of, because it's not bombastic. Instead, we should see what dignity there is in there.
1: What a great word to use for this film. What an unlikely-sounding word, and yet it is right on the mark. This film treats its subject matter with moral dignity. Who would have thought it? Who would have thought it?
0: What can we say more? Uh, dignity. I recommend it. More yes. of it. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining me again, Mr. Teachout. It has been a very pleasant conversation, which it I always is. expect and yet am surprised by since I don't know what we're going to say in advance. And, uh, <laughs> That's the fun part. Experience in that sense, too. Let us do this again next month or so.
1: You can count on it. All the best, sir. And you as well.